At the end of the day, no matter how many stats I show you or anyone shows you, how many colorful brochures about how great we are as a search firm, all these references, what matters at the end of the day is, can you find amazing people? Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and today we're joined by Bob Condal. Bob has 25 years recruiting experience. He started his career at Huxley Associates, part of the S3 group, where he was the all-time top biller on the permanent side of the business. He was also an equity investor in the city and regularly appeared on CNBC and was quoted in the national press. For the last 17 years, Bob has run his own search firm, Melrose Partners, focusing on private equity and private capital markets, helping some of the best funds in the world hire for their investment teams. I have known Bob for almost 10 years now. Bob, welcome. It's absolutely awesome to have you here. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Um, I, I have to say, I was on the contract side at Huxley. And I apologize. No, no worries, but there is a reason uh, for pointing that out because contracts, as you know, is a super fast-paced way of recruiting, right? So, um, yeah, that was uh, a really great training ground, actually. Fantastic. Well, I, I, we'll get into that in just a second. I wanted to ask you about the company name, Melrose Partners. Are you actually from Melrose? I am from a very, very small, well, a hamlet called Bowden, which is like less than 100 people in Scotland, 100 houses rather, no shop. Um, and Melrose was like a mile or two away. So Melrose was where we went to you know, go to the pub when you when you could have your first drink and all most of our friends were in Melrose because there were like three people in Bowden. And plus it sounds nicer as well. Bowden partners or Melrose partners. So yeah, I'm kind of half from Melrose basically. Got it, got it. Well, for those who don't know, Melrose is a historic town in the Scottish borders. And uh, I don't think you know this, Bob, my son plays rugby for Dunbar under 15s. And I know Melrose have a reputation for excellence in rugby at all levels. Uh, it's you know, huge, a huge rugby uh, rugby town, right? Yeah, yeah, massive, actually. Um, so, Bob, I believe your recruiting career got off to a bit of a rocky start. Can you tell that story of your first recruiting job at uh, Huxley? At Huxley, yeah. So I'd, I'd had a sales job before um, in media sales, and I really wanted to do well, and I was just awful. I mean, really bad. Uh, but credit to Huxley, you know, they 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 were looking for, and they probably still look for the same thing, right? They were looking for just people who are sharp and people who just really wanted to do well, right? And I took a holiday. Um, I came back and I resigned. And I resigned to my boss, uh, who's the head of contracts. And he said, look, go and go and speak to Gary, who's the MD of Huxley, who subsequently became the CEO of S3, the entire group. And somebody had just done a deal, right? And they rang the bell. And, and Gary interviewed me when I joined as well. And he said, look, I know you want this. And he said, that guy just made whatever it was in commission. And he ripped up the letter. He said, you're not resigning. Go and get back out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I went from resigning and 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 I went back and I kind of and and you know the firm were phenomenal you know they they supported me I remember there was a week where Gary just sat beside me and from 9 till 6 right just you know 
helping me in calls and guiding me, but they really supported you. You know, if you wanted to do well, they would give you all the support. So I went from being literally the bottom guy. And there were like, there were people who were like, you know, just, you know, there was a guy there who was like 18, who didn't go to uni and he was like, you know, smashing it. And I just thought, okay, I just need to beat the next person above me. And my, and basically my focus was, I have to work harder than anybody else in this office to be able to, you know, achieve what I want. And slowly by slowly, um, I kind of was climbing up, but I still wouldn't, you know, I would still work hard. I'd work weekends. Even if I didn't have a job, I would just kind of get in and think, okay, how can I, how can I do better? Right. What else can I be doing? Cause I knew I was, you know, skill wise, I was like a, a, a one and I needed to be <laughs> at a 10. So, um, so just worked extremely hard, uh, had lots of great support from, from the firm and, yeah, eventually I I basically broke the record for for billings at, at Huxley Associates and was their number one biller. That's um, a which phenomenal a, story. Go ahead. Well, well, it's it's a great mm. lesson for anyone to to really know that you know if you dedicate yourself to something and you're serious about it, you will you will get there. Right? It may take you six months. It may take you two years. But you will get there as long as, and this is the important thing as well. As but you need, you need the environment to be able to do it in as well, right? And I've seen this with people's careers, and I've seen this with friends. You know, if I was with a mediocre business, I don't think I would have been, you know, where I am today. Yeah, that's a such a great point. I can totally relate to that story, actually, Bob, because I was pretty bad at recruitment when I started as well, and. Um, I didn't become the number one biller. I was in the top 15% out of 200 people. I was number one in my small team of eight um, eventually, but it was that feeling of, I really want to do well and I'm not satisfied with, like I was about the middle, I wasn't at the bottom, I was in the middle. I don't like being in the middle. I wanted to be challenging towards the the top. And sure. so the, I, the two things you said really, I agree 100% with. One was just working really hard the second was support. So in my case, it wasn't from my firm. I actually hired a coach. And uh, so was working with a coach and just working super hard. I did have a, eventually got a, a good manager who taught me how to sell retained, you know, retained search as well. And that made a big difference. But mm. what was for you, what was the time frame from being like at the bottom to getting to the, to the top? Uh, so it was contracts business. So I, I, I would have thought probably I was, you know, just stumbling along for six, six to 12 months. Okay. Right. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I joined them in 98. So then 99, 2000s, probably it took, maybe it took me two years. Uh, because as you know, in the contract business, you know, you get one contractor out, you you know, you get, you know, you're not making any money, right? And then slowly and slowly and slowly. And then uh, one month, it was actually the month where Gary sat beside me. I did 10 placements in a month. Wow. Um, I guess you yeah, have to, which... like if Gary Alden is sitting beside <laughs> you, like for yeah. eight hours a day, you kind of, you've got no choice. You have to... Uh... Yeah, but you look, I mean, the, the fact, 
yeah, Gary and 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 the directors mm-hmm. and and the consultants in there were were some of, even to this day were some of the sharpest people I have ever come across. Right, they just yeah. see angles that you don't see, um, and and you know that kind of comes you know going back to the, you know wanting to be successful. If you just dedicate yourself to something and you solely focus on that, it's like the Bruce Lee saying, right? I don't fear the man who can do 10,000 kicks. I fear the man that can do one kick and has done it 10,000 times. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, so Love yeah. that. Fantastic. So moving on then, after you left uh, Huxley, then did you immediately start Melrose or were you were, there was an interim period where you were investing? Is the investing been professional yeah. or amateur? Uh, so I've always been fascinated by investing as well. Um, so I picked up a, a book from my father and I just thought it was like magic. I was like, wow, this is just an intellectual puzzle that never ends and you can make money out of it and you don't have to speak to anyone. You don't have to make something and sell it. Um, and I find, you know, just the the business landscape fascinating, right? You know, I'm, I'll, I'll just... It's just inherently, I guess, uh, curious. So at Huxley, I was always focused on finance. The firm indeed were focused on finance. And then through one of my connections, I got the chance to be uh, an equity trader. Uh, so an advisory trader. So I did that. Um, and, you know, it was fantastic. And even when I joined, you know, some of the guys on some things, I knew more than some of the traders in oh, there. Wow. O- on, Interesting. Only on a few things, only on a few things. Right. Cause I was, I'm such a geek. Right. I mean, uh, I mean that the books are like, you know, 20% of my collection. I'm always reading nonfiction as well. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I just didn't, you know, I didn't go home and read books on C plus plus or Java. Right. Uh, but I do go home and read books on Warren Buffett, on, you know, Charlie Munger and et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, why don't I marry the two and, and do mm-hmm. it at the highest level? So um, so then I basically went into executive search uh, and, uh, you know, did it in, in, in basically private equity uh, and then decided to start up my own firm. Awesome. So that was 17 years ago. Talk me, talk to me about some of the key um, milestones along that journey of being a, a solo search firm owner and but going after the top hedge funds in in the world and you know some of the setbacks and some of the successes you know that you've that you've experienced. Yeah. So, uh, so I basically, I do have two people who work with me and they've yeah. been with me. One of them has been with me for eight or nine years. The other one I hired like a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So they helped me with all the kind of, you know, the, the, the research effectively. Yeah. Um, and you need a good team to be able to perform well. Um, in terms of the, I guess the struggle is always, you know, clients have this, they basically have this idea in their mind that the bigger the search firm, the more coverage I'm going to get. And I work in a small market. So private equity is, is, is a, is a very, is a relatively small market. It's nothing like it in terms of population wise. Right. Um, and we know that's not the case, right? We, we know, you know, as recruiters and, and, and as a coach there, we know that that isn't the case because, 
if you have a team of five and Mark is, is the top biller and he's got his client ABC Capital, and if I'm there and I'm, you know, I'm like third or fourth, there is no way I'm going to get a shot at, at representing the best candidates to my client versus you. So there's so many conflicts there. Um, so that was uh, that wasn't uh, that was an issue, I guess. But then, you know, people are looking for. I, I don't really, I don't pitch clients or sell them. I just explain how the process works, right? And if if you if you really value talent coming into your firm, and if you if so there's two mindsets on the client side. Mm -hmm. There's like anyone can do this job. And 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 they will get anyone to do that job. And it is probably always going to be a painful process for them, right? Because they're like, yeah, the difference between you and Mark or Jane, yeah, you're all the same, right? Which we know is not the case. Right, Bob, just let me press pause here for a second. Sure. So when you say the client mindset regarding talent, do you mean for recruiting for their own team? They think yes. like, just, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. I get there's, it. There, there's either, there's a mindset one, which is anyone can do this job, doesn't matter which recruiter I choose, or there's the mindset that is... I'm always going to need great talent. Mm -hmm. And um, and basically, if I find a great recruiter, half of my problems are going to go away, right? Got it. We obviously want pe clients with mindset number two. Exactly, which is why I'm totally relaxed. If, you know, if, if, if what we do and the way I do it, if that doesn't resonate with you, um, and, and obviously you put it into, you know, into their language as well, which I can do easily because I've been an investor, right? So Bob, could um, you, could you break down in a little bit more detail? So you've, you're, you're in a meeting with clients and, you know, as we know, there's a predisposition for them to, or there's an, there's a, an assumption that they're potentially going to get better access to talent through one of the big search firms, right? Sure. So how do you undermine that? Or or that's that's a false belief, right? And we need them to believe yeah, something totally. different. So how do you shift their belief system regarding that? So I got lucky, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I got really lucky. And this was a huge... Um, huge step uh, for me in those discussions. So basically a, a client had used a, a huge blue chip search firm to do their work for them. And then someone brought me in because they were, you know, they were just kind of not, not really performing. The search firm wasn't performing. Someone brought me in, we worked with them, we worked with them for quite some time. And at the end of it, at the end of a few projects, he said, oh, by the way, we, we've been taking metrics on you. And I was like, oh, okay. Fine. Um, and they were really detailed metrics. So it was CVs presented, um, interview requests to interviews happening, um, to interviews being held, which is uh, a metric I had never thought of, actually. And then obviously offers um, uh, case studies or final meetings, etc. And we absolutely blew the other firm away. Um, we presented something like 67% more CVs. Um, in terms of that interview to interview request to the interview happening, we had 94% of interviews take place. Mm -hmm. The other firm had something <clears throat> like 63% of interviews took place. 
Um, Bob, just pause on that for a second. What does that, what's your interpretation of that? What does that suggest to you? Oh, so I know because individuals tell me and clients tell me that basically when you're, when you often, when you're going with a large search firm, one, they have 10 or 15 other mandates exactly the same. So as a client, you're on a, a list on an email, right? And it's like, take your pick, you know? Got it. So in other um, words, they have represented that same candidate to multiple firms. And then the one of those firms says, hey, we want to interview uh, Susie. And the search firm is like, oh, well, Susie's no longer available or interested because she's already got... Is that what you mean? Like, why would she... Why wouldn't no, she okay. So sorry. So so when the search firms reach out to the candidates, mm -hmm. because they have 10 other mandates, mm -hmm. they are basically saying to, hey, Susie candidate, here's 10 mandates. Tell me what you're keen on effectively, mm -hmm. right? So that doesn't serve you if you're Mark Whitby Associates. No one's getting saying, hey, here's Mark Whitby Associates. Mm -hmm. This is why, you know, tell me what you're interested in. Maybe this is a match. Uh, and then going into real depth into the culture. Mm -hmm. Importantly, most recruiters go, hey, here's a job. It's doing this, 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 and this, and this, this, and this. And it's like, <laughs> okay, right. That sounds like every single job under the planet in my sector, right? Um, <laughs> what they don't do is say, what are you interested in first? Yeah. And then match that to that. And then say, you know what? If you join Mark Whitby Associates, Mark's a fantastic guy. He's been in the industry for 20 plus years. He's one of the only four kind of, uh, you know, top four or five global recruitment trainers. He mentors people. The last person he mentored said, you know, it was the most, you know, it was the most productive, ex uh, you know, productive experience of their or um, professional life, et cetera, et cetera, right? Importantly, what they're not doing is saying, hey, Susie, this is what you are going to get from this. This is what you're going to learn. This is what you're going to enjoy. This is how you're going to improve as a professional. And by the way, it's going to be great fun as well. 100%. That makes total sense. So thanks for that segue because you're you're totally right, and I don't know why still like after generations of recruiters and decades of the recruitment industry, why recruiters still present job specs to candidates and lists of duties and responsibilities rather than flip it and find out what's most important to the candidate and then present those specific you know show them how this role is going to serve them to get what they want. Um, it blows my mind. But let's circle back to your progression at, at Melrose Partners. So they were showing these, sharing these metrics with you. You presented 67 more CVs than the big blue chip firm. 67% more. 67% more, exactly. Yeah, which is huge. Uh, 96% of the interview requests resulted in interview attended. And then what mm -hmm. What were the other metrics? Uh, other metrics were final meetings or case okay. studies. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we, we did more than two times the case studies because obviously if you're getting in more high quality at the top, then clearly that's going to filter all the way down. Mm -hmm. And we had double the amount of uh, offers and placements. And 
um i mean we're going into the law of slow of law of low numbers here but we didn't have anyone reject uh we we never have anyone reject an offer uh, anyway right and that's because i look after the process all the way through if you're a recruitment business owner you might be feeling the pressure to invest in new technology but how do you invest in technology that is proven to win higher paying clients Otherwise, overall, you're just making a financial loss. Our trusted partner, iIntro, has a solution for this. They provide recruiters with an online delivery platform for the candidate shortlist. So instead of sending over CVs or resumes, you can send your clients an online profile that includes video, key competency questionnaires, and behavioral assessments. It looks more professional than a CV or a PDF, Plus, it helps the client make a more informed decision about who to call to interview. But that's not all. iIntro also provides recruitment business owners with coaching for their team, not just to help them use the software, but to help them use it to win more retained business. Their comprehensive training program is specifically designed to help recruiters at all levels of experience develop a retained recruitment service. In fact, many of the hundreds of recruitment businesses they've worked with win a brand new retained client after only a few weeks of getting started. To see iIntro in action, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to book a free demonstration. There's no obligation, plus you'll also be helping to support this podcast. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. All right, we, we're, we need to get into at some point, let me circle back to no turndowns because that's unheard of in recruiting. But uh, let's put a pin in that and come back to it. What mm. what did you do with those metrics? How did that help you? Because you said you got oh. really lucky and the bigger conversation was around winning clients as a small firm. Yeah, so I mean, look, I, I got lucky in that the client did that, right? It's very yes. rare to get a, a direct comparison and, and, and also a direct comparison versus you know, because before I was, I feared these names, mm. right? I was like, wow, these guys are, you know, they're huge and, you know, they must have armies of people. Oh, in fact, you know, I know they don't have armies because I've got friends who are global and European heads at, at, at the biggest firms. Um, and I know how it works, but there was still that fear. Um, but I always knew, and, and it does make sense, right? If you have one person who is dedicated, say, for example, on one mandate, they are going to be one person that's that's going across 10 mandates or five mandates. It's just common sense, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that focus is a big part of success. Sure. Right. Um so, so then how do you how do you explain this to clients then? Because this is obviously something they've never thought about. Sure. And so what how do you lay it out for uh, a client so that because you said you don't really pitch, you just explain to them how executive search really works. So how, what's your explanation, yeah. Bob? Look, it, it, you know, it's <clears throat> it varies for different clients, Mark. Mm -hmm. Everybody's looking for something different and or, or everybody has a different hot point, if you want to call mm -hmm. it that, or hot button, right? To some people, it's going to be a very bespoke approach that, you know, I really want you to tell my story. To other people, it's going to be um, I really want someone that understands the marketplace and can come up with thoughtful suggestions that someone else can't come up with, right? Mm -hmm. um, but to answer 
your question in terms of what did I do, um, I you know, we immediately put that into an infographic uh, and made that very obvious to people. Um, and then, you know, we essentially talk about it. And you can talk about, um, you know, the reason why 94 or whatever it was, uh, where we had a super high rate of people taking the the interview to the interview request is on one end of the scale, you've got a recruiter just, you know, emailing a menu of jobs to Susie. Mm. On the other end of the scale, you've got me, and then I do a 30 to 45 minute discussion with her really in depth, checking that everything is fine, she likes it, and I'm going into a super, super colorful story about the firm, uh, importantly about what it means to her and mm -hmm. the things that are important to her career. Um, and then that's why we hardly get any drop-off. Of course, you're going to get drop-off because client comes back to you after two weeks and maybe someone's taken a job somewhere yeah. else or, 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 you know, whatever, right? Um, but I was pretty surprised that they, you know, they had other firms have such a, a, a big drop-off. Mm -hmm. Are there any other key distinctions you draw uh, in terms of the advantage of working with uh, you as the, as the principal rather than a partner at a large firm? Um, I think, well, I think for one, basically the role is split up at larger firms. Mm -hmm. So as, as you well know, there's nobody 47 year old doing research um, in a large firm. I do the research, um, you know, I, well, I get the research. I look at, you know, all the teams. I look at the teams like I'm looking at, you know, football statistics or something like that, right? Um, you know, and, you know, we talked about this before. I, I've memorized entire teams, where they were educated, what they studied, what grades they got, what they're interested in, what languages they speak, which was, you know, a, a super intense task. Um, so, you, and I think, Really, if you break down recruiting in, in the search world anyway, there are only really two things you have to get right. You have to get the research right. One, do you know your market? And two, you have to get the execution right. Um, and I think that's the opportunity, not just with me, but with any um, search consultant. If they can do those two things really well, you've, you've, you've got a potentially great partner to help you. All right. So you've, you're, I'm leaving breadcrumbs here, uh, Bob, because there's another thing I want to turn, go back to, which is memorize that exercise of memorizing teams. <laughs> but uh, so just to round up this discussion about small firms pitching against larger firms, are there any other things that you feel have set you apart or allowed you to win business against those, you know, Shrek firms? Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just a continuous focus on thinking, how can we do this better? How can I do this better for the client? And how can I do this better for the candidates or the individuals? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you just focus on that, and, and frankly, I think my fear of the bigger firms, the Shrek firms, the other ones in private equity, 
helped me, right? Because if you're sitting there thinking, wow, these guys must be next level. I have to do something exceptional yeah. to kind of even get at the table then, you know, you're going to come up with some amazing stuff, right? Awesome. Um, uh, hey, Bob, a couple of things you've mentioned to me in previous conversations. One is the issue of conflicts and off-limits, right? Because yeah. a bigger firm is going to have more off-limits, Yep. right? And whereas you can recruit from a much larger pool of, uh, of, of firms. And the other yeah. aspect that I, th I thought was interesting that you shared with me previously was and you alluded to it just now, but um, the idea that in a big firm, the partner brings in the work, but they don't actually, yeah. they're not that involved no. hands-on in the delivery, right? No, whereas, no. Whereas you are directly involved in, in, and you're supervising the research, but you're directly involved in the execution, which um, rather than uh, a, a grad, this is their first job out of college, right? Sure. Who's, who's uh, still sure. cutting their teeth. I think those are two huge points. But the third thing is, like, how many of your clients are you seeing in person? Um, actually, since COVID, mm -hmm. it's it's actually kind of dropped to people wanting to do VCs. Yeah. Um, but I, I still want to meet people. But, you know, my, my client base is, you know, they're, they're working, you know, ridiculous hours, yep. travel, et cetera. So it's just more efficient. Um, but yeah, actually, even winning new clients uh, do it over VC these days. I mean, I, right. I, I like to meet them face to face. Um, uh, and I do where possible. Got it. Can you tell the story about um, going into a client meeting and not actually talking about your service, but talking about investing? And like, and then <laughs> right. the, actually the other thing that leading into that is the amount of prep you do for a, for a client meeting, which it, there's no, when people hear this, they're going to understand why you would win the search over, over somebody else. Uh, well, it doesn't happen every time. Right. Um, you know, people, different people want different things, but, yeah. uh, so, uh, I obviously focus on private equity and private credit, but there are hedge funds that hire um, those individuals. So I met easily one of the top 10 largest hedge funds. It's one of the most successful hedge funds uh, in the world. Um, I introduced a great candidate to him just opportunistically. Um, and I did like, you know, I don't know, four or five hours of research on the firm, right? As, as in not just newspaper clippings and newspaper stories, which was part of it, but also looking at their um, their past investments, which you can dig up if you know where to look. Mm -hmm. uh, and then looking at the the businesses and trying to understand. So anyway, this was, you know, I we'll have a meeting with him at their offices, um, walk in and, you know, we have a few, you know, introductories. Hey, how are you doing? You know, who do you work with? And, um, and then I just started asking him about his investments. I started asking about, you know, I, I, something along the lines of, you know, I get the impression that what's portrayed in the press is different to actually your investing philosophy. Because I, that's pretty much my first question when I ask any firm, what's your investing philosophy? I was like, you know, I've been doing, you know, I've been looking at this and this and your investment here. You know, can you just go into that a bit? And, you know, he went into it and we we're talking, you know, if you're an investor, that's all you love talking about. I love talking about it. 
he was. And then we're kind of 45 minutes into the meeting and I'm thinking, wow, I, I, have, I should really say something about, you know, like a client testimonial or, you know, something like that. And, and he wraps it up and he's, he's like, uh, he, he starts wrapping it up and I think, oh no, I've totally blown this just by talking about investments. And, and, and he said, look, you know, we don't actually retain firms at the moment. We only work with the select one or two, um, you know, we'd love you to kind of, you know, give us ideas when you, ha when you have the time, if that's something you would consider. And I was like, wow. This guy is like the number two guy in a massive hedge fund. And I walked out and I thought, you know, probably the reason that he liked me was he was thinking this guy can talk about us. You know, there's not many recruiters that would go in, if any, that would just be able to, pour, you know, talk about our investments, the philosophy, et cetera. And when you think about it, who wants to sit there and listen to, yeah, we have a database that is, you know, so many gigabytes big and we've got 300,000 people. So they just want the right person, right? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. A hundred percent. So to, I want to circle back to a few little uh, things you, you mentioned earlier, seeds you planted. One was this idea of memorizing teams, which is... Uh, I've right. never heard of anybody doing that before. So yeah. what, how, first of all, why did you do that? And then second of all, how did you do that? So this was COVID, mm -hmm. right? So it was lockdown. Um, we had one client that, that we had something on with, but obviously there was nothing else to do. This was the beginning of COVID. So I thought to myself, okay, look, we're, we're, you know, we're fine. We can, we, we can, you know, stay in business for, you know, a long time actually without doing anything. And I thought, going back to that thing, you only need two things in search, research and execution that need to go really well. So I thought, what do clients want, right? Why would a client hire you? A client would, as a headhunter, as a search headhunter, a client really wants to know, does this person know my market inside out and backwards? So, so then I basically thought, right, I've got lots of time here. Um, uh, so then I basically used um, uh, a memory palace uh, and memory techniques, which I'm familiar with, but I've never really used. I was always interested, right? It kind of seemed like a, a superpower, right? If you could memorize people's names and all this stuff. And so I've always, you know, even since I was 18, actually, my father used to like, like these books. Again, he, he didn't apply it either. Not that I know. Um, so then I thought, right, okay, let me do this, right? So then I, I did memory palaces and uh, I, you have to break it up into small chunks or maybe 10 people at a time because you're not just remembering a name. You're not just remembering, you know, uh, Jane Smith. You're remembering the first name, the last name of people that you don't know as well, right? First name, last name, the team they're in, the level they're in, the degree they did, where they studied. Quite often there's two universities, two subjects, uh, the grades, if you know them. Um, uh, and then if you know what they want to do, you, you have to memorize that. So, and then you have to come up with all these elaborate stories, which is why it takes, you know, probably do 10 at a time. So you have to make up this highly memorable story um, around that individual in a location and then move on to the next person. So uh, this idea of the memory palace, is this, because I've heard this from Darren Brown, uh, but where yeah. does what's the best book if if someone thinks 
This is so cool. Like I want to improve my memory, um, which like, let's face it, memory is very useful as a recruiter. What's the, yeah. what's the, what's the best book to learn how to do that? Uh, you know, I've, I've got a number of books. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think there's one in particular, uh, but Tony Buzan was very good. He was a kind of, I think he was almost like the father of the world memory championships, et cetera. Um, there's a website. So actually, if you go on Google, you'll find these chat places where people you can, it's probably better because you'll get advice, right? If you're crazy enough to do it. I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't do it anymore, actually, because I haven't, I literally just don't have the time because you just to remember 10 names. It took me like two, two and a half hours, first thing in the morning, and you are drained. You're, I wow. mean, you're like, knackered right so how when you did that like how many people did you have packed into their uh, uh you know at i got up to about 120 130 i did it sector by sector and okay. i was doing it by you know the top uh firms okay right? I mean, interesting you want to know the so so bob if you were going to memorize my name you know what how would you how would you go about that so the name itself is fairly easy okay uh, actually it's quite difficult it is quite difficult if because a lot of my uh, actually very few of my um my it, very few of the individuals or the clients that i deal with are actually british they, they're all um, you know very uh european or international uh, so if I was going to memorize your name, um, I would have my location. So let's say it's 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 at my house. So I'm going to memorize you as one of the team, right? So you're going to be the first person I memorize. So you would be at the at this at the um, at the entrance doorway of my house. Um, I've got a friend called Mark who I do jujitsu with. I mean, this guy is literally like a uh, you know like a human Hulk uh, basically. <laughs> so uh, so so Mark would be there uh, because that's very memorable to me. Let's assume I don't know you, right? Mark is Mark would be there, uh, and uh, I've been to Whitby actually. Uh, and the one thing I remember about Whitby is it's a it's a seaside you know fish and chips kind of place. Yeah. So for me, that works. So Mark would be there eating his fish and chips. And then, you know, that would give me Mark Whitby, right? Um, awesome. And then you just add on things from there. Wow. That's a, it's, what a cool intellectual exercise and uh, impressive if you can pull some of those names out in the course of a meeting or, you know, so that's cool. Um, I want a client that way, actually. Not yeah. not by pulling the name, not by pulling the names out, but she she uh, and it's actually <clears throat> a mega fund as well. She said, you know, the classic, what makes you different? Mm -hmm. And I said, and you know, of course, there's like ten different ways to answer that. You don't yeah. know what what they want to hear. Yeah. And I was like, look, uh, I, said, I did the basic. I've done this for you know x amount of years. Um, I said, here's maybe something a little bit different. And I said. And I went into, look, I memorized all these teams, all this data, the levels, blah, blah, blah. And she was actually, I think she was, she was actually previously at one of the Shrek firms. Mm -hmm. And and then I heard silence and I thought, oh God, she thinks I am totally bonkers. <laughs> and then she and then she goes, I absolutely love that. Um, and she said, we should work together. Um, and we do. Fantastic. That's cool. That's cool. Um how do you get no turndowns? Because like, I feel like counter offers and, and people getting cold feet and all the reasons, you know, there's 20 different reasons why people 
mm. get all the way to offer stage and then and then don't take the job you know they get another their their spouse you know they 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 get a a competing offer that's closer to home or you know there's so many reasons that are completely outside of your control as the recruiter so mm. what is your process that allows you to literally get zero you know uh jobs turned down so i have an unfair advantage because i am an investor okay so um it's so i know what i'm talking about and i'm i'm moving i'm helping someone move from one place to another um so really understanding you know does the that's why i ask what's the investing philosophy right people will take jobs for less money if it's more interesting anywhere right if you're going to get you know better career path better you know culture mm -hmm. if it's more interesting not everyone right but people will um but really the 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 answer to that is is execution right um is if we go to the the, the normal model of a large search firm senior person wins the mandate mm -hmm. and then pretty much has very little to do with it a junior then is you know a first or a second time jobber and this is in top grading as well right he literally says they do 90 to 95 percent of the work and they don't have the experience the horsepower to a engage with these people uh, and then take them through the process but i take people through the process and after 25 years i'm extremely sensitive to just watching how that person is behaving in that process. Mm -hmm. Are they emailing me? I, I typically stand back after I present the opportunity. Um, some search firms, uh, I mean, this is shocking, at mid to senior levels are just calling people on the phone, just presenting Meaning? the opportunity, not even having a meeting, not even having a VC. Okay, right, right, right. As in that's the initial thing. That's and the, then they yeah. have... Yeah, and then they have PAs arranging the interviews. Um, and I'm like, wow. And, you know, I'd love to do that, right? I, it ties, you know, I get loads more time. I can do more of this, more, more business development. But I always arrange the interviews, not because mm. I want to arrange the interviews, but just because I know, okay, I know Mark is in three other processes and they really like Mark. He needs to go in first. And then when I'm talking to, to you as the individual, I'm going, what do you like about it? What do you not like? I don't do the talking. I'm just asking a few questions. And then the more you talk, the more you go into it, I'm just seeing, okay, yeah, this, this, is, this is working. This is definitely there, right? That's basically what I'm doing all the way through that process when I'm arranging interviews. Um, so there's, there's, there's two parts to it. It's, it's management of the process, but more importantly is like, you know, is this person really interested and do I need to iron anything out? Right. So get, getting no offers declined is really a function of having already qualified and checked and ironed out everything. So that totally. you know, they're going to accept the job before you make the offer. I guess that's the bottom line. Absolutely. And if they're not, Absolutely. then we're not going to make the offer. Is that the... Yeah, but but a good recruiter should know, right? When you're going into final meetings, you yeah. should be, you know, you should already know how is this going to work for you? What What's your notice period, X, Y, Z? And, and then mm -hmm. some people will kind of back off. 
Um, and I think a lot of recruiters do this, or, or, or certainly, you know, that was my impression, is that, you know, they go off hopium, right? They hope it's going to work. <laughs> hopium, in- I've not heard that one. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Hoping and praying that it's going to all come together. Exactly. Yeah. And, and importantly, they're afraid. The recruiter is re- afraid of getting the answer, you know what, this isn't for me. Mm. I'm not. I, I'm the opposite way. I want to flesh it out as quickly as possible. I say that on the first call. I'm like, look, if it's not for you, that's great. We've learned something and we shouldn't waste anyone's time. And I mean it, yeah. right? Because I really don't care. Obviously, I'd like to call 10 people and get that placement. But if I have to call 100 people and do 100 VCs, I will do that, right? And I think a lot of people don't want to do that, right? Or they're like, if I just send 10 more, if I just send, but you're not looking at the quality of the match there, hundred percent. You said something earlier, which you, uh, you got a meeting with a top firm through a opportunistic introduction. Do you, how, how much do you use MPC marketing as a tool for, um, start sparking conversations with potential clients, Bob? Uh, as much as possible. Okay. Can you say so more? Even about, though we, yeah. Even though we're, even though we're retained and exclusive, yep. Um, I mean, you have to, right? So the reason I'm asking, I'm really interested to hear you say that because we teach MPC marketing as one of many business development strategies, um, Mm. and there's an art to it. And, um, Mm. and we are, we've updated and refined that over the years to integrate, you know, technology into that process as well. But sometimes Mm. the objection I get from retained folks is, oh, MPC isn't appropriate. And I'm not going to get a retained search by specking in a candidate. And they're, mm. they they have this uh, resistance to it, but you've obviously have a different viewpoint. Could you say more? Yeah. I mean, I'm smiling because I'm like, please carry on with that if you're in my <laughs> sector. <laughs> but look, at the end of the day, At the end of the day, no matter how many stats I show you or anyone shows you, how many colorful brochures about how great we are as a search firm, um, you know, all these references, what matters at the end of the day is can you find amazing people, Mm -hmm. right? And why would you not show a client that you're not working with someone amazing, right? If you were a football agent and Messi said to you, hey, um, I want to move, why would you not make the te- you'd call everybody <laughs> right, right of course I, yeah i'd call everybody just to say i'm the guy representing messi but that's right. but, but that's kind of genuinely where it's coming from and look yes. most of the time you don't win a search right but On you definitely call. make yeah exactly yeah. like very rare very yeah. rare right but it's basic it's basically what you're doing or what i'm doing is i'm connecting with super senior people, normally people that run the business. Yeah. And and they're going, wow, this guy really knows his stuff. And I've 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 specced in MPCs to clients that I've never worked with. Um and, you know, five years later or four years later, um, you know, they're calling me because I sent them someone mm. who was amazing. And that was Absolutely. the one but I only you have to do it with you that's your calling card. That is your product. Yes. Right? Absolutely. So that's a good point. But the other flip side of this, Bob, which I think a lot of recruiters aren't connecting all the dots here, is that most large search firms, and if you're not a fit for one of the mandates, then they 
they don't really even want to talk to you, right? Whereas Correct. if you are being proactive and really partnering with a talent yep. and then yep. being proactive and almost being their agent, you use the sports agent analogy, yep. they're yep. going to remember that, right? Because no other oh, recruiter totally. is doing that for them. And even if you don't get them a job or an interview, let's say, yeah. but yeah. the they enjoyed the experience of working with you and they were appreciative of what you, all the things you did try for them, even though it didn't kind of uh, result in a, in an interview, that yeah. person's going to go into a firm and they're going to work their way up. And, you know, which recruiter are they going to remember when they have a mandate of their own to grow their team? Absolutely. And that has really paid dividends back in the last three, four, five years. So I've always had the, so I'm lucky because it's my business, right? So I can do what I want. And I only wanted to target great investors and great people on the client side. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to, and I never will, thankfully, touch wood, I've never had to, because obviously you do have to pay the bills, but <laughs> I've never gone for firms where they're just not nice human beings. Right. I, you know, I can't sell that, right? Yeah. And actually... Uh, uh, a candidate told me this. He said, you know what, that is a, you know, you, that is a uh, virtuous circle or, or, you know, something similar to that, yeah. right? He said, I never have to be disingenuous, right? Yeah. And of course, there's no such thing as a perfect world, right? Or a perfect job. Yes. But if you, if it's, if it's great and then there's one thing, you know, kind of not quite clicking, um, then, you know, that's fine, right? Because there is no such thing as a perfect uh, world or a perfect job. Yes. Um, so, sorry, go on. You're no, gonna I was going to ask, like, um, agree a hundred percent. We have the same philosophy. I only want to work with people I like, uh, yeah. because life is short and, you know, I want to work with people who give me energy that I feel, you know, uh, uh, it's just rather than draining, you know, there's people who give you energy and there's people who drain your energy and you want to totally. spend as much time around the people who, who you give each other energy and it's a, it's a reciprocal thing. Um, one of the uh, perceptions that I have about the biggest P firms and, and hedge funds is that they're, they can be quite elitist and male dominated. Do you think that's changing or do you think like, how do you reconcile that? Uh, they might be very nice people, but mm -hmm. there, there, is there a lack of diversity? And then what responsibility or role do you, do you feel you have as the recruiter to challenge mm. that and get them to consider people from non-traditional backgrounds or from, you know, that sort of thing? Uh, I, you know, in private equity and, and private capital, there's been a huge, huge uh, push for diversity in the last what, three, four years. So some firms are getting up to 50-50 um, in terms of male-female ratios. Um, so that's that's... I've not had to push on that at all. Um, Interesting. Okay. Uh, it's, so they're already. It's been a, you feel like they're already on board. Yeah, with they're. That. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm guessing from the from you asking the question, I'm guessing they're ahead of the curve with other sectors for sure. Um, Excellent. But it's been a massive. It's been a massive mm. uh, push and a massive focus, and continues to be actually. Yeah, Bob. Uh, you, you and I have talked about thinking fast and slow before. Um, could you say a little more about like the types of books you like to read and, and why that one in particular, you know, really spoke to you? 
So thinking, I, I like reading a lot of nonfiction, mainly mm -hmm. about investing or psychology because it kind of, uh, it relates to the job, but I'm just genuinely interested, right? I'm just interested, like what is, what makes one person successful and another mm. person not, right? But thinking fast and slow is basically like a manual to how people think, right? And if you study that like a textbook and then you make notes and then you think, okay, the important thing is applying it. What most of us do is we read a book and we go, oh yeah, great book, great, put it down there. And off we go back into our normal routine or totally. patterns that's, or whatever. That's me, no, right? like 99 It's actually, it's challenging to read a book and mm. to then really analyze how can I apply this in my world, right? This Because it is like thinking fast mm -hmm. and slow, I'll be honest with you, I only got about halfway through, even though, mm. I mean, it's absolutely genius. It's fascinating, these psychology experiments that uh, Daniel Kahneman and his, and his partner were running, Mm. But um, it is very dense. It's like a textbook, as you say. And so yeah. it would take uh, quite a lot of discipline to extrapolate from that. Okay, how can I use this in a recruiting context? It sounds like you've actually done that. So kudos to you. Um, so what what is that process? Fit? Like walk me through the physical process of how you would approach that book and then make it actionable. So there's, first of all, I think there's only three or four chapters that are highly relevant for what we do, mm -hmm. right? But like, for example, there's a, um, there's a process, there's a chapter um, called the associative machine, right? Basically talking about your brain, right? Mm -hmm. that, you, that your brain is an associative machine, right? So if you think about that in the context of uh, what we do as recruiters and head headhunters, the language you use as a recruiter has an impact on someone and they will associate the words you use with certain feelings, et cetera, et cetera, mm. right? So for example, the, 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 the really good example, and I do not know why firms do it and I don't know why recruiters do it, but they do do it and it's awful. Every firm I know practically is a leading firm. Right, you'll see it in mm. job ads. Yes, you'll even you'll even see it on the company's website. We are a leading private equity firm. We are a leading private capital firm, or a leading recruiting firm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, if everybody is a leading recruiting firm, and and we've all seen this, right? Mm. E everyone has experience of this. Then that word "leading" has no meaning at all. Mm. And in fact, what it probably says on the subconscious level is, we're just like everybody else. Hmm right? Because if everybody describes themselves sure, as, yeah. as that, all yeah. right. So, uh, so, so I, I specifically have never used that word, just like the job spec thing. I specifically mm. never send out job specs because it's, it's a conversation. So get a thesaurus, get a thesaurus. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's simple, right? Um, preeminent, right? or outstanding. I was just, I've ju we're just in the middle of a senior, uh, a fairly senior search. Uh, and I said to the guy, you know, wh why did you, we're obviously always outreaching to people who are in work, right? We never advertise. And I said, you know, what was it about the email that really stood out? And a lot of people, because that's always the first outreach, right? A lot of people say, you know, it was your email. And one guy actually said, you know, the way, you know, you described it as an outstanding firm. 
Um, and, and obviously, I don't say who the firm is on an email, right? Um, so your language really, really matters, right? And if you think about it from a deep perspective, you know, people like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, even if you look at the opposite side, Hitler, they did it with words, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, so how you say things, but understanding that and applying that um, and really understanding how do people think, what's the best way for me to communicate this, right? That's, uh, you know, that's going to change your shortlist from, you know, maybe seven to 10. I'm just mm. picking numbers, right? But when you're looking at those margins, that makes a big difference. Uh, so it's interesting, those charismatic speakers that you referenced, there's the words, but then there's how you say the words is possibly even mm. more important, which you don't have an email. So that, like, totally. I think what all those speakers you mentioned have in common is they were absolutely congruent. So yeah. they believed in their message and yeah. there was like, there was no conflict at all with their body language, their tone of voice and the actual words they were saying. So the words they used, no doubt that were conscious, that were, yeah. were selected and they were powerful, but yeah. it was more than that. It was, it was how they said it. Now, this goes back to you only working with firms that you are actually interested in, that you think you can sell, you, you like the people, et cetera, because saying Correct. the words when you don't believe them, that's going to come across, right? People will pick that up. Totally, totally, um, totally. But then how do you deal with that in an email where there's no real tone of voice? Um, I guess it, then it, the words are even more important, right? The words are yeah. the only thing someone yeah. has to go on. It's harder to convey. <sighs> So true to so true to um, true to my my nature, I bought like the top ten copywriting books on Amazon. Great. Um, <laughs> uh, I then got coaching from a copywriter. Great. Um, a, a well known copywriter, and and you know, some people may think, oh, you know what, to send a to send an email, you know, that's a bit OTT, and a lot of them go over the same things, but. If you read 10 books, if you spend that many hours, mm. fair enough, it's repetitive, but is it important to you and is it mm. important to your job? Are you willing to put the time in to do it, to to make those small changes? So yes, you're right. You you have to believe in what you're doing, but, if, but there is a way to sell yes. over the internet. There is yes. a way to sell on email. There is a way to sell over there. So yeah, that's the, that's the hook, right? I want to get them in. This is uh, this has come up before on the podcast because, but rarely this topic of copywriting. It's such an undervalued right. skill in our oh, yeah. world, and I think especially now that more and more communication is digital versus cold calling yep. people. That yep. um, and or at least that's very often the very first, uh, yep. you know, touch point is an email or a LinkedIn message. That sure. Why would you not invest the time to really study that and get good at it? That's a kind of critical skill. And the reason exactly. like we want, we teach cold outreach in, in our coaching program, whether it's via email, via LinkedIn, you're, you're reaching out to a stranger mm. and people, you know, again, the resistance we get, oh, that's, that doesn't work because people get all these messages and they see all these sequences and it doesn't work. And I, and, and I'm like that. That's true. The reason it's not working is because most of them are 
terrible, right? Yeah. They're just really, and they and they all sound the same. To your point earlier of the leading, all like you have recruiters sending out crap, you know, uh, and yeah. you know these these sequences which um, they 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 are indistinguishable from each other, and they they. So that is the reason why you need to ensure that it doesn't mean that channel doesn't work, right? Same with the MPC strategy or any sure. strategy. You know, it doesn't yeah. mean that the channel or the strategy won't work. It means that you need to do it right. What What was the best um, copywriting book that you, uh, you, uh, you found most useful? I think the, I, I forget the name of the book. I think it might actually be called Copywriting, but it was a, uh, by a guy called Bob Bly. Bob Bly, B-L-Y. yes. And, and you know him? Yeah, I do know him. I've spoken to him before. Um, yeah. And he, well, you, you have the same name. I don't know if that's why you're biased towards Bob, <laughs> Bob Bly, but- um, It's a big book. It's a big book. So Bob is a prolific author and copywriter. Um, yeah. I hired him once. This is, I uh, you know- Going right. back 20 years ago, I, I I couldn't afford him to write my copy, right. but I hired him right. to critique my copy. So I'd written, uh, a direct, I've studied direct response advertising, Bob, since I was 18, so like over 30 years. Right, um, wow. And, uh, I, and I wanted his feedback on my writing and he, he did, he, I don't know, I've paid him 500 bucks at the time for him to read my, uh, my copy and give me his feedback, but uh, really, mm. really valuable um you you just casually mentioned brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, about half an hour ago and i wanted to pick up on yeah. that because i have tried bjj before covid and then obviously during covid during lockdown we couldn't do it and i never went back to it and um i'd love to hear your journey with this how long have you been doing jiu-jitsu uh so i've been doing martial arts for over 20 years okay mainly it was stand-up martial arts yeah so uh i started doing jkd jit kundo which was bruce lee's one yeah uh and then i moved over to muay thai hmm. and then because i'm a relatively small guy i'm like you know five eight ish mm -hmm. weigh about 70 to 75 kilograms after christmas <laughs> <laughs> when, I'm in, when i'm in shape i'm about 70. so i'm a small guy so i never yeah. really felt confident with uh with stand-up because it's just brute force versus brute force yeah so jujitsu i've been doing for five years i would wow. say okay um and uh, <clears throat> it's the only martial art actually where they talk about the 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 mental side of it more so that very much growth mindset Right. Mm -hmm. And I've never heard that in any martial art. And that ties in with success in life as well. Right. Definitely. So, so, so the learnings from jujitsu were you have to be humble, mm -hmm. right? Because someone else is just going to come along and beat the living hell out of you. And they're going to do it a lot when you're a white belt and, and you're just going to learn how to survive. Um, but the parallels with work are you know what you you're not going to win every fight you know someone else is mm -hmm. going to be bigger than you better mm -hmm. than you faster than you it's like you know you know what all you can do is do your best right and keep learning um, and keep improving exactly but the mindset is awesome do you still do or or you no you this is quit? the thing I, I i think i'm looking for you to talk me into doing it again bob i um right so there's there's a few aspects to it well there's 
I mean, it's super hard, right? It's really hard, but physically, yeah. mentally, it's draining. I love yeah. that I'm attracted to it for the reasons you just said. It's it's about um, staying calm in adverse situations. It's very yeah. much a chess match. It's so like, yeah. it, it is a thinking man's martial art, right? It, it is oh, totally. very intellectual, totally. which I, I found I would leave the workouts, not just physically exhausted, but mentally completely exhausted. Yeah. I yeah, liked yeah. being a beginner again and and re remembering like, hey, when our clients start out and they feel overwhelmed with stuff that mm. we think is pretty straightforward, mm. I need to be mm. empathetic to that and 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 break it down for them and really try and make it as accessible and, and give them the roadmap and coach them along the, the journey because to me mm. it's like sending setting up email campaigns is obvious and 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 second nature, but if you've not done it before, it feels overwhelming. So it was all the, for all the, those reasons. It was beneficial. But Bob, and I don't mind doing hard things. I I hate running, but I can get myself to to run. Mm. The thing that I think the biggest thing is I am. It is very physically intimate. So you have, and I'm the same yeah. size as you. I'm five nine. I weigh about 150 pounds, and you have large men lying on top of you. They're sweat dripping in your eye. <laughs> I, you know, and you're yeah. smelling each other. You're like very, you're, you're, yeah, like, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not that close with anyone apart from my wife normally. And, um, yeah. and, yeah. uh, and so, and, and I almost can't decide which is worse, r rolling with a man or rolling with a woman. Because I remember this one day I was, yeah. it was me and this lady. She was probably similar, a bit younger than me. She was maybe in her 40s. And we were both beginners, fortunately. And I, I'm in full mount, literally sitting on her belly. And yeah. we're doing this uh, type of of choke, and I'm I'm sitting on her, choking her, and I feel like this feels wrong. Like this, I, my, this is yeah. every part of me feels this. I shouldn't be doing this. And then when we we changed, we obviously were taking turns. So then it was her turn. It was hilarious. So this lady's sitting astride me, and I can feel myself going out. The I, I'm starting to see stars. But the right. funny, what made it funny is. At the same time as she was cutting my air supply to my brain, she was saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Because she felt like she shouldn't be doing this. Uh, so how did you get past the kind of, uh, like, this is not, normally in day-to-day -day life, you don't, you know, you're not that intimate with people, right? I think that's my biggest, apart from the risk of injury and all those other fears, that's my, that's, that's the part I found the hardest. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, my, my brother jokes with me when, you know, when, if I text him and I'm like, I can't speak tonight because I'm going to jujitsu. He's like, oh yeah, so you're going to, going to roll around with a bunch of other men in their pajamas again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I get it. But I, I, I mean, I, I guess I've always liked martial arts. Mm -hmm. And, and if you, if you know about the UFC, if yep. you know anything, jujitsu really came to the fore because, Absolutely. you know, they won number one, number two, number three. I mean, they blew everyone away and especially yeah. for smaller people. If you take someone to the ground, which is quite easy to do, you negate a lot of that power, right? Yep. Um, but actually, the parallels with jujitsu and uh, recruiting are are uh, there's a lot of parallels because you're doing the same moves as a white belt as a black belt will do. Yes, right. But the difference with a black belt is something completely different, right? Even just the way they grip you sometimes, and you're like, oh, you want to tap immediately. And that comes through just dedication and refining 
and you know just a millimeter here and it's the mm. same in your job right. right but you know i i i wanted to be good at it i know i'm never going to be great at it because the job comes first for me so yeah. i can't compete with these guys who are like training 5 days a week you know uh, every day and you know this that and the other you know i'm just not there but i i do it because in, and intellectually I mean, you could do it for 20 years and you still haven't mastered certain parts of it. So it's never ending. That's a great parallel with recruiting, isn't it? Because, you know, yeah. you can learn the basic moves, but to be able to really, you know, I mean, you never achieve mastery, but the, the yeah. subtle, you know, distinctions, yeah. which make yeah. somebody who on the surface looks like they're doing the same thing, but really they're not. There's a lot more going on right? When you yeah. are talk, you know, qualifying a candidate versus someone who's been doing it for six months. So fantastic. Yeah, exactly. All right, yeah, Bob. Well, exactly. I'll let you know if I, uh, if I make it back to the gym, um, I'll, I'll keep you, you should, posted. You should. If you, if you've got a good school, you should. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 uh, just stick with it. That's all I would say. And, and the disheartening part is the challenge, right? Um, mind you, I, mean, I, I, I get it if you feel like uncomfortable with like, you know, 140 <laughs> kilogram guy, like killing you, right? <laughs> I, I'm not, it's the, actually, I prefer rolling with the black belts and the blue belts because they know what they're doing yeah. and they also try yeah. and help you, right? Whereas if you're, exactly. when I'm rolling with like a 20 year old guy mm -hmm. who's full like of testosterone and yeah. he wants to like, he wants to dominate and he doesn't know the proper technique, I think that's where you can get hurt. Yeah. So a tip for you is mm. you, you always choose your partner as well. So we're, we're a similar age, yeah. right? I've, I've had my MCL, uh, damaged and uh. I was out for six months. I had ligaments yeah. in my, in my fingers damage. I was out for three months and I'd refuse to, to, to roll with anyone that, that, that is just out of control. And typically right. it's the white belts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, with, with a blue belt upwards, purple, brown, you know, they'll, they'll, you, you will learn a lot more from them and then they'll tell you, hey, you did this wrong, you should do this yes. and reset and say, hey, okay, what should I be doing instead? You know, you caught me there. How did I go wrong? Right? Awesome. And it's same in recruiting. You want to you roll with people who are better than you, right? So that you're, yeah. you're always learning. Totally. But like I said, you know. We, uh, I could chat with you for hours. That was fun. <laughs> thanks for Thanks for being on the show. Good. Thanks a lot. All right, Bob, have an awesome day and uh, look forward to our next chat. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really want to help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.